when I look back on my career, you know, would I have done it knowing that there'd be such a pile of bodies at the other end? Um, I, I probably would have. But I really, really was so entranced by diving and, and being inside the planet. Like, it was a, a mistress that, you know, I couldn't shake. I'm Lady and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today, y'all, we're getting deep with Canadian underwater cave explorer Jill Heinerth. Jill just published a brand new memoir called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. Over the past 30 years of her career, Jill has cave-dived deeper than any other woman in history. From ancient sinkholes in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula to the inside of shrinking icebergs in Antarctica. Jill's clocked more than 7,500 dives. That's the equivalent of spending at least a couple of years underwater getting to know our planet from the inside out. When I'm swimming through an underwater cave, I feel like I'm swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. Like, I'm inside these tunnels that are like the beating heart of the planet, like sending this beautiful fresh water through the earth to supply humanity and the environment and agriculture and every industry that, you know, we need water for. So it's a pretty amazing both technical and spiritual pursuit for me. Swimming through the veins of Mother Earth? Like, that truly sounds amazing, Caroline. But look, I'm a terrible swimmer, and cave diving would just scare the shit out of me. Um, yeah, same. And not surprisingly, diving into caves hundreds of feet under the ocean is tremendously dangerous. In her memoir, Jill writes that, on average, 20 people drown cave diving every year. That's more lives than Mount Everest claims. But that whole fear factor is exactly why I could not wait to talk to Jill as soon as I read Into the Planet. I mean, yes, I wanted to know what it's like to be a fucking underwater explorer, which is objectively badass. But throughout her memoir, she reflects on fear as a positive catalyst that literally keeps her alive on the job and feeds her sense of curiosity and adventure. Yeah, I mean, for Jill and her line of work, avoiding fear is not an option. So today, y'all, we're channeling our inner mermaids to discover what makes cave diving worth all that risk to Jill personally, how underwater exploration intersects with conservation and global climate change, and why Jill prefers to spend so much of her life underwater. It's all to find out what happens when we swim towards our fear instead of away from it. So you have dived in some pretty incredible places, and we want to kind of uh, do a little lightning round. Mm -hmm. um, so how how many continents have you dived in? All of them. Longest time you've been on a dive? Uh, 22 hours. Deepest dive? 460 feet. Most remote location? Inside an iceberg in Antarctica or under the Sahara Desert. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love those two extremes. Or actually uh, inside a volcanic lava tube in the Canary Islands. That was pretty remote underneath the seafloor. 
Okay, I love that you have have three tying for most <laughs> remote. <laughs> um, most unusual wildlife you've encountered. Ooh, uh, remipede. It's under like one to two inches long, kind of like a centipede, so a whole bunch of legs, no eyes, no color, so it's white, translucent, sort of, and it has venomous fangs <gasps> and pincers, and it can attack something 40 times its size, inject venom into it, and suck the life out of the innards of the prey to feed. So it's a pretty, pretty evil creature. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I was expecting. <laughs> I bet. <you. laughs> I always thought they should animate that and like turn it into a monster movie. You know, Remipede. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Little Mermaid is coming back, mm, so yeah. Remipede versus <laughs> Godzilla. <laughs> uh, okay, Kristen, you can officially add Remipede to the list of things I'm terrified of. Thank you, because I am keeping that list. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, but also, seriously, like that is one of the most spectacular spectacular resumes I have ever heard. Like, oh, how's work going, Jill? Oh, fine. Just tunneling my way through a volcanic lava tube, per use. Cave diving is pretty abstract to people, but I'm literally swimming through water-filled tunnels, passages that wind their way beneath the surface of the earth. So we're swimming into these places that are completely void of light, like under a ceiling, and going sometimes miles into the planet down branching conduits um, that are filled with water. So yeah, Jill's career is pretty unique. And to get an idea of just how much she loves her job, in her memoir, Caroline, she describes cave exploration as, quote, Far more exciting than sex. Ooh, okay. Maybe I need to check out a waterbed. You and me both. Although, one of the things that makes underwater cave diving so orgasmic for Jill is the feeling of being weightless. Oh, I've always said that gravity sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not graceful on the surface. You know, I've crashed my van. I've gone over the handlebars of my motorcycle. I've I've gone over the handlebars of my bicycle. I've 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 done it all. I'm I'm you know I'm not the most graceful land creature, but but underwater is a whole different thing. It's um, you get to transcend all of that. Kristen, I found this just so poignant in Jill's memoir, like her love of the physical freedom that comes with leaving gravity behind. That weightlessness in the water also makes her cave exploration possible. Like, if y'all think getting dressed for work feels like a chore, get a load of this. So whenever Jill goes on a dive, she's lugging anywhere from 150 to 600 pounds of equipment with her. Fins, helmet, lights, oxygen tanks, backup oxygen tanks. But of course, as soon as she's submerged, all that weight evaporates. Underwater, every person can be equal. Like, as soon as your head goes beneath the surface, the sounds and the stresses and the distractions of anything in your life go away. And underwater, everybody of every size, every color, every, you know, physical makeup can be as beautiful and graceful as a mermaid. Like, without gravity, we're all equal. When was the last time you felt as graceful as a mermaid? Um, Probably when I was like six years old pretending to be one in the public swimming pool. Uh, But listen, I mean, underwater cave diving involves a lot more than just flipping your fins. 
not only can you not um, just, you know, bolt to the surface if there's an issue, but there's also no mission control to call for help. You're really on your own to solve anything that could happen. It's really easy to get turned around or lost and eventually run out of air. It's not like you can Google Maps your way around. And in fact, Jill is the one mapping a lot of these spaces for the very first time. So when I cave dive, uh, you know, you can picture me swimming through this clear water in a river inland in Florida, um, you know, passing by the fish and the beautiful blades of green thick grass and seeing little turtles and things. And then I get to this this hole, this dark hole, and I I dive down into that space, and I'm running this thin braided nylon line into this this cave. And then I squeeze through that opening and then boom, it opens up and it's like the size of an aircraft hangar. And the water is clear and untouched and obviously a place that nobody has ever been before. And I spool out that line into the blackness and I travel off into this this space and inside me I'm like a little kid just going, woohoo! You know, <laughs> nobody's been here. <laughs> and uh, lay my guideline as that, that first explorer. It, it's such a high. It might as well be the dark side of the moon. I mean, we know more about the dark side of the moon than we do about these these inner Earth spaces. So how did you come to fall in love with exploring inner space? Well, I wanted to go to outer space when I was a kid. I wanted to be an astronaut. But, uh, you know, growing up in Canada and watching, literally watching the, you know, Apollo missions on TV as a, as a kid, that totally inspired me. And then I was informed that, you know, not only did we not have a space program in Canada, but we certainly didn't have any women astronauts to look up <laughs> to. So, uh, you know, exploration was kind of in my my DNA from the very beginning. and and having an opportunity to really use some of the same technology to explore, like, inner space uh, ended up being maybe even better than being an astronaut. Okay, Caroline, like, the earlier barriers for women who wanted to become outer space astronauts are pretty well known, but we don't often hear about women aquanauts who trailblazed into inner space. Which brings us to a brief lowlights reel we're calling... 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea of Patriarchy. It all starts when Jacques Cousteau invents the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, or scuba, in 1943. Then diving quickly evolves from this exclusively military and commercial activity to a splashy hobby. But in the early 70s, science got a lot more serious about underwater exploration. Oceanographer Sylvia Earle led the first all-female aquanaut team that spent two weeks in basically a glorified submarine conducting research on marine life and ecology. For the aquamaids in Tektite 2, like the astronauts in Project Apollo, the mission begins with a preliminary period of intensive training. Dr. Sylvia Earle... Alina Schmunt, Peggy Lucas, Dr. Renata True, and Anne Hartline. These are the female aquanauts in the pioneering project. Technically, it was the first NASA mission that included women, and folks were blown away that women could live underwater in such a high-tech habitat all by themselves. 
But that didn't exactly normalize women in daring or dangerous fields. Well, ask Google. Type in female explorer and you'll be a little bit shocked. You know, you might get Amelia Earhart, right? (laughs) But you'll also get about 100 hits of cosplay women in like pirate outfits. Fortunately, though, you do get a lot of hits from Dora the Explorer. And <laughs> I probably identify with her and Amelia Earhart more than, than anybody else. Yeah. Whether for work or play, diving remains a doodly sport. According to industry data, women make up just over a third of open water recreational divers and less than 20% of diving instructors. And even though explorers like Sylvia Earle proved long ago that women are plenty capable underwater, sexist myths are still floating around. And it's a lot of the typical bullshit. Like, oh, well, women have less upper body strength and lung capacity and all those wacky hormones. Like, basically, the argument is that women are too fragile to kick it underwater. And apparently we're too witchy to even invite on boats. Boat captains said that having a woman on a boat was bad luck. (laughs) You can't have bananas and you can't have women on a boat. (laughs) There was all this you know, perception that, you know, oh, well, women bleed, so they're going to attract sharks, you know, well, that's crap. And, oh, well, women bleed, so they're more likely to get bent, you know, decompression illness. Well, that's just flat wrong, too. Yeah, there's zero evidence that women are physically less capable of cave diving. Plus, staying alive is way more about brain smarts than muscle strength. There's no reason why a woman can't, you know, achieve the top of the sport equally or maybe even better than a man, because women are really in touch with their limitations, they're risk-averse, they're careful, they're good team workers. So women are great divers. As online cave diving communities began forming in the 90s, they confirmed that, yes, women divers like Jill existed, and no, not everybody was happy about it. It got ugly. Like, a friend of mine, Annette Long, stood up and... um, spoke about this one particular guy, and he gets back on the internet and says, oh, you know, Annette's got her size 42 panties in a wad, and and, um, and that's, only the, that's only the start of it. I mean, the same guy sent me body bags and asked me to clean up the cave after myself. Now, Jill says that any sexism she's encountered during her cave diving career has usually been more subtle than being sent body bags. But she's constantly felt a need, especially when she was starting out, to prove herself as the rare woman on dives and high-level expeditions. Yeah, and at the hyper-masculine intersection of exploration and adventure, you know, women are often relegated to sidekicks and explorers by marriage. But sometimes, Caroline, being the lone woman on the boat makes for some especially memorable moments. We're shooting out of a canoe, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in the Arctic, and I'm doing dives with polar bears, right? So I'm in the canoe, and I'm about to go diving with a polar bear. But I've got to pee before I finish putting on my dry suit, right? Um, Uh Uh-huh. So it's a 24-foot canoe, and I'm in there with, like, four men, um, (laughs) many of whom are now filming me with cameras. (laughs) So I throw on a poncho and then drop trow and stick stick my butt over the side (laughs) of the canoe. So I'm sitting on the gunnel taking a pee off the boat in the, you know, best way I can, and the director's, like, interviewing me. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm peeing. (laughs) He was like, oh, my God. Like, he was horrified. And I'm like, well, you know, (laughs) 
This is the reality of being the woman on the boat. <laughs> yeah, that is a skill set. I thought I was good because I could, like, change clothes easily, like, in a moving car. <laughs> yes. But if you can pee off the side of a crowded canoe. <laughs> well, being filmed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I actually did a video on YouTube about how, how, how to pee discreetly, like... <laughs> If you're an adventure girl, <laughs> adventure girl's guide to peeing, I think it's called. <laughs> I will definitely be Googling that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Caroline, you know I have a bladder the size of a thimble. And no, there was not a film crew around, thank God. But I was once on a boat in a Louisiana bayou with gators around, and I had to pee into a Mardi Gras cup and then dump it overboard. <laughs> Are you impressed yet? Huh? <laughs> I'm impressed that you were able to use just a single cup, but also, why didn't you have a pee funnel with you, Kristen? I know. I, I, I think I know what our next unladylike merch should be. <laughs> yes. After the break, Jill talks fear and how it's actually a good thing. Stick around. <laughs> have to have the shit scared out of you to learn how to deal with fear. And you're not good at it the first time because it's, it's shocking. <laughs> you, know? you get better and better when frightening things happen. We're back with cave diver Jill Heinerth, author of the new memoir, Into the Planet. Ironically, Jill's earliest underwater memory was when she almost drowned as a child. And she didn't immediately take to swim classes either, but throughout her life, something about the water just captivated her. It wasn't a straight line to her diving career, though. Jill went to college for fine arts and then started an ad agency in Toronto. Business was good, but she couldn't shake that childhood dream to get in the water. She started taking diving classes on the weekends and became a certified scuba instructor on the side. But it got harder and harder to go back to work after weekends in the water. And suddenly, Jill realized she felt trapped in her conventional career. She was afraid that pursuing a diver's life would disappoint her parents and defy expectations that she should settle down and make a family. So literally, you know, one day I thought, I I've got to turn this around. This can't be my hobby. Uh, I need to do my creative work underwater and find a way to create a career to do that. Jill said fuck it and decided to swim toward her fear. In 1991, at 27, Jill went all in, which meant getting scrappy to make money. She started writing articles and diving in scuba magazines and took up underwater photography and film. And she joined diving expeditions and started collaborating with scientists of all stripes. But as her cave diving expertise grew, so did the risks. So fear is such an underlying theme of Into the Planet. And in fact, you welcome people to the book by inviting them to find humanity in the sensation of terror. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think that we should all be afraid. 
<laughs> I think it's a good thing. Um, when you're afraid, that's that little tingling sensation is an indication that you're doing something new, right? Not something you've never done before. And so if you're doing that, if you're having that sense of fear, um, it's an opportunity. The fear is just telling you that you care about the outcome. So we want to move towards fear to experience moments of opportunity and discovery in our lives. Um, you know, for me, that's a very literal thing. You know, I go into these doorways that are filled with blackness that would terrify most people. And yet I would invite people to go into their own cave, you know, in a, you know, figurative sense and say, you know, step into the darkness, allow your eyes to adjust to the light. And in that space um, where you're looking forward to something that terrifies you, take a small step towards that because that's where the opportunities lie for you. Um, so I think fear is a good thing. I think we should all skin our knees and face the consequences. <laughs> well, and what you're describing also sounds distinct from being fearless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If people think I'm fearless, and I, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm risk-averse. You know, I, I am aware that what I do is inherently dangerous. I've lost over 100 friends to uh, diving accidents over the years, and, and that's— that's tough, but I think about that every time I approach something that's difficult. And I want to, you know, be aware of the risks, assess them. And it's a problem-solving puzzle for me to figure out how to, how to do things safely, as safely as possible. I mean, I'm still willing to take on a risk if it's worth it for the sake of science or discovery, um, but I'm going to walk very carefully into that situation. Cave diving is, you know, one of the most dangerous kind of pursuits imaginable. So in that context, what does safety even mean? <laughs> well, it means, you know, in a very, you know, small microscopic sense, right before a dive, I'll sit down, close my eyes, and I'll literally think of the things that could possibly kill me <laughs> on this dive. And I'll work through that list and go, okay, yep. That could happen, but I've practiced how to solve that. Uh, okay, this could happen, but I know what to do if that breaks. Uh, okay, you know, this could go wrong, um, but, you know, I got it. I'm, I'm willing and able to self-rescue. I'm willing and able to take care of a buddy. So by the time my head goes under the water, I'm rehearsed. And then if something happens, I can just deal with it very quickly and easily, knowing that I already know the answer to the problem. What is the answer to the problem? Like, what do you do when you find yourself in a scary situation? In the actual moment of being terrified, I focus on breathing. So I take a deep breath and tell myself that the emotions won't serve me right now and that I have to focus on really small, pragmatic steps towards success uh, and survival in my case, because sometimes the big picture, the, you know, getting out of that doorway of the cave or solving that huge life problem is too much to figure out in the moment. But we can all figure out the next best step. And so I, I really concentrate on that. Jill's ability to stay calm in a crisis would be tested time and again throughout her career. 
Like this one time 20 years ago, Jill was doing a super deep dive off the Yucatan Peninsula. It was this place called The Pit. And to safely depressurize, she was going to have to make a slow, progressive return to the surface. On her way back up, though, Jill knew something was wrong. When I was underwater, I started to feel it. I started to feel like there were ants crawling around my thighs inside my dry suit that I was wearing. And I recognized that that was basically the bubbles, the bubbles coming out of my tissues and now starting to wreak havoc in my body. So I knew I was bent. The bends is basically a sports injury for divers. So when you descend, otherwise harmless gases just get really pressurized in your tissues. Slowly ascending lets your body safely depressurize. But if you're bent, those bubbles come spraying out of your tissues way too fast like a soda bottle as you come back up. Yeah, it's super painful and can be deadly. And it's why divers can't just whip back up to the surface. But sometimes, no matter how careful you are, it happens anyway. People go home and and the symptoms slowly creep up. So there's a little bit of pain. There's a niggling. Oh, there's some tingling. Now I can't feel my toes. Holy crap, now I can't move my leg. So the symptoms are progressive. And people often don't report until the symptoms really build up or they get very serious. So... In my particular case, I, I didn't want to admit it because I, I kept hoping it would go away. It's like, is this DCS? I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll go away if I stay down longer. After resurfacing and ditching her denial, Jill made it to a doctor. The depth of her dive meant she needed multiple rounds of compression treatments. But even after that, the diagnosis was not good. I was told by the doctor that I would never dive again. What went through your head when the doctor told you that? Oh, I, I remember being in so much pain. And so in, on the one hand, it didn't surprise me. Like, even before he said that, I thought, this is the end of my career. And I was already thinking about, what will I do? Who will I be? This is, this is what identifies me, you know? Uh, so it was devastating. It, it, it didn't just seem like the end of a career. It seemed like the end of my my self-image. And I was like rudderless, you know, where where would I go next? But I also knew that when I admitted to the community that I got bent, that I was going to, I was going to be, you know, looked at nine ways to Sunday over the internet. Well, what did she do wrong? <laughs> you know? Those fears weren't unfounded. A lot of divers don't want to admit they've gotten bent. And Jill writes in her memoir that getting bent inevitably brings shame on the diver. The community has created this situation where um, we're embarrassed to fess up because people will say, well, you made a mistake. You swam up too fast. You fucked up. Whatever. It's your fault. It's like we actually used to label decompression sickness. The medical doctors labeled it a deserved hit or an undeserved hit, right? Like, you know, who deserves any illness? Like, is there deserved cancer and undeserved cancer? Like, is lung cancer deserved cancer if you're a smoker? Like, like that's a horrible way to look at, like, illnesses, right? Well, you do mention, though, that you, when you were open about um, it happening, that you also received messages of support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people 
who I knew and knew well started telling me their stories. It's like, oh, well, when I got bent, I'm like, I didn't know you'd been bent. Well, I never really told anyone. You know? <laughs> so all, everybody started confessing, and it was weird. So what makes all that fear, risk, and death worth it? Helping save the motherfucking planet, that's what. <laughs> Stick around. If I die, it will be in the most glorious place that nobody has ever seen. I can no longer feel the fingers in my left hand. The glacial Antarctic water has seeped through a tiny puncture in my formerly waterproof glove. If this water were one-tenth of a degree colder, the ocean would become solid. Fighting the knife-edged freeze is depleting my strength my blood vessels throbbing in a futile attempt to deliver warmth to my extremities. The archway of ice above our heads is furrowed like the surface of a golf ball carved by the hand of the sea. Iridescent blue, wedgewood, azure, cerulean, cobalt, and pastel robin's egg meld with chalk and silvery alabaster. The ice is vibrant, bright, and at the same time ghostly, shadowy, the beauty contradicts the danger. We are the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg, and we may not live to tell the story. That was author Jill Heinerth reading from the prologue to her memoir, Into the Planet. She's describing a harrowing diving trip she took in Antarctica in 2001 when she became one of the first people to ever explore caves inside of an iceberg. In her memoir, Jill explains how a massive crack had formed on the Ross ice shelf, and the scientific community was really concerned about whether this was a sign of global warming and polar ice caps starting to melt. So with funding from National Geographic, Jill and a diving team set out for Antarctica to document what was going on. Climate change and sea level rise were things that we were barely talking about in those days. And at the time, we saw that as an opportunity to see, like, a piece of ice the size of Jamaica and go swimming inside that to see, you know, what it was like, what was there. And uh, and nobody had ever done that before. So it was a, a huge opportunity for me. Um, amazing, amazing diving experience. Jill isn't just in it for the personal glory, either. Scientists depend on the discoveries that divers like her can make. Yeah, so 20 years ago, Jill worked on one of her favorite projects. It was with the United States Deep Caving Team. And they were mapping a cave system in Florida to figure out the location of drinking water underground. This was the expedition when Jill went farther into underwater caves than any woman in history. We created the very first three-dimensional map that had ever been made of any subterranean space, dry or wet. And it was groundbreaking. That map was such a big deal because it allowed scientists to find aquifers hidden underground, which is super helpful, side note, since currently less than 1% of the Earth's water supply is usable. 
up until that point, I had really been perceived as some adrenaline junkie out to get herself killed. And after that point, like the data that we brought back from that project was so valuable to scientists and hydrogeologists and urban planners, like to really understand where the drinking water conduits were beneath our feet. It also kicked open the door for a lot more um, scientific collaborations in other areas of, of science and cave diving. I work with biologists who are looking at these cave-adapted animals that live in the darkness of caves. I, I work with physicists and, and geologists that are interested in global climate change and the evidence that we find inside rocks in the cave. I work with archaeologists. We find the remains of civilizations that are no longer with us on Earth and you know, also the remains of extinct animals that are, are no longer around. So uh, there's so many different aspects of of science that's done in underwater caves. It's they're real, you know, museums of natural history. Museums that deserve to be protected. One of Jill's biggest motivators in exploring and documenting our planet is to help educate folks about their impact on the environment, particularly our waterways. Could you explain the term water literacy oh, and yeah. why mm-hmm. unladylike listeners could probably use more of it. Sure. So I think of myself as someone that can communicate about our water resources. Like like I'm swimming in the beginning of the pipe where the water comes out of the ground and fills a river that leads to an estuary and out to the ocean and serves the ocean the oceans um, as well. And I think we all need to get better connected with where our water comes from how we use it, maybe how we unintentionally use too much or unintentionally pollute it. Because if we're all more connected with those water resources and understand how important they are, um, I think that's one of the most most critical issues of, of the next decade, really, water issues and global climate change. So that's water literacy, really, is, is understanding our interconnections with our water systems. If you had been fully aware of, you know, just the inherent risk of cave diving and even the fact that, you know, down the road you would have lost, you know, dozens of friends to this pursuit, do you think you still would have gone after it with such abandon? You know, it's interesting. As as much as I understood the risk, you don't – it's not real until there's a dead guy on the – on the boat deck, you know, um, when when somebody dies, it, it's a whole different thing. And you, every time somebody dies, you reassess why am I doing this? And you sit down with your spouse and you go, "Here's why I'm doing this." <laughs> <laughs> so, in those moments, then, what is your answer? Well, I I'm doing it for myself. I mean. You know, you can't put a butterfly in the jar and expect them to live, right? <laughs> like, I'm doing it because it gives me joy, um, because I love being in the water, and I love the act of exploration and going to a place where no one's been before. But in the bigger picture of things, every dive that I do has to matter in some way. And so I feel like I'm contributing to a better awareness of of our planet and some pretty important issues like global climate change and water issues. So so I feel I feel a passion for my work and that and that it it, it matters. Okay, Jill. So what would be your final advice for unladylike listeners? Know in your heart that nothing is impossible. Um 
problems that you want to solve might seem too great, uh, too big, whether it's global climate change or rising to the top executive level at the business that you work at. Those can seem way too big. Just break it down. Know that nothing is impossible. And if you work hard and you take one small step, take the next best step every day that you will achieve things that are far greater than you ever imagined. And I like to think that I'm, I'm living proof, you know, chase your dreams. Um, they're achievable and you can create a career and a life um, that is truly meaningful to you. Well, are there any places that you're looking forward to exploring in the future? Oh, yeah. I, I have a very long list of, of places I'd still like to go. Um, yeah, there's a lot of the planet left to explore. I mean, do you still want to go to space? Oh, I would, yeah. Given the opportunity, I mean, I've written letters to <laughs> to Richard Branson on an annual basis and never gotten a response. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you know, as soon as he announced Virgin Galactic, I was like, oh, my God, I want to go. I can't afford a ticket, but I need to go and uh, need to see this big blue planet from outer space so I can communicate to people about it. Okay, and ladies, tell us your thoughts. What fears have you swam towards recently? Where have you gone exploring and how many times have you peed off the side of a boat? Let us know on social at Unladylike Media. Or you can email us at hello at unladylike.co or comment on the episode thread in our Facebook group. Head on over to our website, unladylike.co, to find this episode's sources. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get good news updates about women in the world every Wednesday. Unladylike is produced by Sam Lee and Nora Ritchie. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. We are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week. I was so fucking aware of my body and my desire and everything I wanted. Like, I was raging. I felt like I had, like, Angelina Jolie-style Gia, like, in my pants <laughs> and the body of, like, Jack Black. <laughs> there was just so much desire. We're talking with director slash producer slash actor slash writer slash proud bisexual Desiree Akvan about her show, The Bisexual, and what it means to be seen both IRL and on screen. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike so you don't miss our conversation with Desiree. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Ten thousand leagues under the sea of patriarchy. Under the sea, under the sea. Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down when it's wetter. Take it from me. Anywho, there's your blooper. Okay. Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here. 
and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.